Hello everyone and welcome back to one more chapter. Today we will be embarking on a very famous adventure with Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Today's short story will be Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Speckled Band. On glancing over my notes of the 70 odd cases in which I have during the last eight years studied the methods of my friend Sherlock Holmes, I find many tragic, some comic, a large number merely strange, but none commonplace. For, working as he did rather for the love of his art than for the acquirement of wealth, he refused to associate himself with any investigation which did not tend towards the unusual and even the fantastic. Of all these varied cases, however, I cannot recall any which presented more singular features than that which was associated with the well-known Suri family of the Royalots of Stoke Moron. The events in question occurred in the early days of my association with Holmes, when we were sharing rooms as bachelors in Baker Street. It is impossible that I might have placed them upon record before, but a promise of secrecy was made at the time, from which I have only been freed during the last month by the untimely death of the lady to whom the pledge was given. It is perhaps as well that the facts should now come to light, for I have reasons to know that there are widespread rumours as to the death of Dr. Grimsby Royalart, which tend to make the matter even more terrible than the truth. Hmm. It was early in April in the year... 83, that I woke one morning to find Sherlock Holmes standing, fully dressed, by the side of my bed. He was a late riser as a rule, and as the clock on the mantelpiece showed me that it was only a quarter past seven, I blinked up at him in some surprise and perhaps just a little resentment, for I was myself regular in my habits. Very sorry to knock you up, Watson, said he, oh, but it's the common lot this morning. Mrs. Hudson has been knocked up, and she retorted upon me, and I on you. What is it, then? A fire? No, a client. It seems that a young lady has arrived in a considerable state of excitement, who insists upon seeing me. She is waiting now in the sitting-room. Now when young ladies wander about the metropolis at this hour in the morning, and knock sleepy people up out of their beds, I presume that it is something very pressing which they have to communicate. Should it prove to be an interesting case, you would, I am sure, wish to follow it from the outset. I thought at any rate that I should call you and give you the chance. My dear fellow, I would not miss it for anything. I had no keener pleasure than in following Sherlock Holmes in his professional investigations, and in admiring the rapid deductions, as swift as intuitions, and yet always founded on a logical basis with which he unraveled the problems which were submitted to him. I rapidly threw on my clothes and was ready in a few minutes to accompany my friend down to the sitting-room. A lady dressed in black and heavily veiled, who had been sitting in the window, rose as we entered. "'Good morning, madam,' said Holmes cheerily. "'My name is Sherlock Holmes.' This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. Ha! <laughs> I'm glad to see that Mrs. Hudson has had the good sense to light the fire. Oh, pray draw upon it. 
and I shall order you a cup of hot coffee, for I observe that you are shivering. It is not the cold which makes me shiver, said the woman in a low voice, changing her seat as requested. What then? It is fear, Mr. Holmes. It is terror. She raised her veil as she spoke, and we could see that she was indeed in a pitiable state of agitation, her face all drawn and grey, with restless, frightening eyes, like those of some hunted animal. Her features and figure were those of a woman of thirty, but her hair was shot with premature grey, and her expression was weary and haggard. Sherlock Holmes ran her over with one of his quick, all-comprehensive glances. "'You must not fear,' said he soothingly, bending forward and patting her forearm. "'We shall soon set matters right, I have no doubt. "'You have come in by train this morning, I see.' "'You know me, then?' "'No, but I observe the second half of a return ticket in the palm of your left glove, "'that you must have started early. "'And yet you had a good drive in a dog-cart, along heavy roads, before you reached the station.' "'The lady gave a violent start, and—' "'stared in bewilderment at my companion. Oh, "'There is no mystery, my dear madam,' said he, smiling. "'The left arm of your jacket is spattered with mud in no less than seven places. "'The marks are perfectly fresh. "'There is no vehicle save a dog-cart which throws up mud in that way, "'and then only when you sit on the left-hand side of the driver. "'Whatever your reasons may be, you are perfectly correct,' said she. I started from my home before six, reached Leatherhead at twenty past, and came in by the first train to Waterloo. Sir, I can stand this strain no longer. I shall go mad if it continues. I have no one to turn to. None, save only one who cares for me, and he, poor fellow, can be of little aid. I have heard of you, Mr. Holmes. I have heard of you from Mrs. Farintosh, whom you helped in the hour of her sore need. It was from her that I had your address. Oh, sir, do you not think that you could help me too, and it at least throw a little light through the dense darkness which surrounds me? At present it is out of my power to reward you for your services. Uh, but in a month or six weeks I shall be married, with the control of my own income, and then at least you shall not find me ungrateful. Holmes turned to his desk, and, unlocking it, drew out a small case-book which he consulted. Hmm. Farinatosh, said he. Ah, yes, I recall the case. It was concerned with an opal tiara. I think it was before your time, Watson. I, I can only say, madam, that I shall be happy to devote the same care to your case as I did to that of your friend. As to reward, my profession is its own reward. But you are at liberty to defray whatever expenses I may be put to at the time which suits you best. And now I beg that you will lay before us everything that may help us in informing an opinion upon the matter. Alas, replied our visitor, the very horror of my situation lies in the fact that my fears are so vague, and my suspicions depend so entirely upon small points which might seem trivial to another, that even he to whom of all others I have a right to look for help and advice looks upon all that I tell him about as fancies of a nervous woman. He does not say so, but I can read it from his soothing answers and adverted eyes. But I have heard, Mr. Holmes, that you can see deeply into the manifold wickedness of the human heart. 
you may advise me how to walk amid the dangers which encompass me. I am all attention, madam. My name is Helen Stoner, and I am living with my stepfather, whom is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England, the Roylots of Stoke Morong, on the west border of Surrey. Holmes nodded his head. The name is familiar to me, said he. The family was one time among the richest in England, and the estates extended over the borders into Berkshire in the north and Hampshire in the west. In the last century, however, four successive heirs were of dissolute and wasteful disposition, and the family ruin was eventually completed by a gambler in the days of the Regency. Nothing was left save a few acres of ground and the two hundred year old house, which is itself crushed under a heavy mortgage. The last squire dragged out his existence there, living the horrible life of an aristocratic pauper. But his only son, my stepfather, seeing that he must adapt himself to the new conditions, obtained an advance from a relative, which enabled him to take a medical degree, and went out to Calcutta, where, by his professional skill and his force of character, he established a large practice. In a fit of anger, however, caused by some robberies which had been perpetrated in the house, he beat his native butler to death and narrowly escaped a capital sentence. As it was, he suffered a long term of imprisonment and afterwards returned to England a morose and disappointed man. When Dr. Roylott was in India, he married my mother, Mrs. Stoner, young widow of Major General Stoner of the Bengal Artillery. My sister Julie and I were twins. We were only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a considerable sum of money, not less than a thousand pounds a year. This she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott entirely while we resided with him, with a provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died. She was killed eight years ago in a railway accident near Crewe. Dr. Roylott then abandoned his attempts to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live with him in an old ancestral house at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for our, all our wants, and there seemed to be no obstacle to our happiness. But a terrible change came over our stepfather about this time. Instead of making friends and exchanging visits with our neighbours, who had at first been overjoyed to see a royal lot at Stoke Moran back in the old family seat, he shut himself up in his house and seldom came out to save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. Violence of temper approaching to mania has been hereditary in the men of the family, and in my stepfather's case it had, I believe, been intensified by his long residence in the tropics. A series of disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in police court, until at last he became the terror of the village, and the folks would fly at his approach, for he is a man of immense strength and absolutely uncontrollable in his anger. Last week, he hurled a local blacksmith over a parapet into a stream, it was only by paying over all the money which I could gather together that I was able to avoid another public exposure. He had no friends at all save the wandering gypsy gypsies, 
and he would give these vagabonds leave to encamp upon the few acres of bramble-covered land which represent the family estate, and would accept in return the hospitality of their tents, wandering away with them sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion also for Indian animals, which are sent over to him by a correspondent, he has at this moment a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over our grounds and are feared by the villagers almost as much as their master. You can imagine from what I say that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us, and for a long time we did all the work in the house. She was but thirty at the time of her death, yet her hair had already begun to whiten, even as mine has. Your sister is dead, then. She died just two years ago, and it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. Well, you can understand that, living the life which I have described, we were little likely to see anyone of our own age and position. We had, however, an, an aunt, my mother's maiden sister, Miss Honoria Westfall, who lives near Harrow, and we were occasionally allowed to pay short visits at this lady's house. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago, and met there a half-pay major of marines to whom she became engaged. My stepfather learned of their engagement when my sister returned and offered no objection to the marriage. But within a fortnight of the day which had been fixed for the wedding, a terrible event occurred in which has deprived me of my only companion. Sherlock Holmes had been leaning back in his chair with his eyes closed and his head sunk in a cushion. But he half opened his lids now and glanced across at the visitor. Pray, be precise as to the details, said he. It is easy for me to do so, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is, as I have already said, very old, and only one wing is now inhabited. The bedrooms in this wing are on the ground floor, the sitting rooms being in the central block of the buildings. Of these bedrooms, the first is Dr. Roylott's, the second my sister's, and the third my own. There is no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor. Do I make myself plain? Perfectly so. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn, that fatal night, Dr. Roylott had gone to his room early, though we knew that he had not retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong Indian cigars which it, is, which it was his custom to smoke. She left her room, therefore, and came into mine, where she sat for some time, chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock, she rose to leave me, but she paused at the door and looked back. Tell me, Helen, said she. Have you ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of the night? Never, said I. I suppose that you could not possibly whistle yourself in your sleep? No, certainly not. But why? Because during the last few nights I have always, about three in the morning, heard a low, clear whistle. I am a light sleeper, and it has always awakened me. I cannot tell where it came from, Perhaps from the next room? Perhaps from the lawn? I thought I would just ask you whether you had heard it. No, I have not. It must be those wretched gypsies on the plantation. Very likely. And yet, if it were on the lawn, I wonder that you did not hear it also. 
Ah, oh, but I sleep more heavily than you. Well, it is not of great consequence at any rate. She smiled back at me, closed my door. A few moments later, I heard her key turn in the lock. Indeed, said Holmes. Was it your custom always to lock yourselves in at night? Always. And why? I think that I mentioned to you that the doctor kept a cheetah and a baboon. We had no feeling of security unless our doors were locked. Quite so. Pray proceed with your statement. I could not sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. My sister and I, you will recollect, were twins. You know how subtle are the links which binds two souls which are so closely allied. It was a wild night. The wind was howling and the rain was beating and splashing against the windows. Suddenly, amid all the hubbub of the gale, there burst forth the wild scream of a terrified woman. I knew that was my sister's voice. I sprang from my bed, wrapped a shawl around me, and rushed into the corridor. As I opened my door, I seemed to hear a low whistle, such as my sister described, and few moments later a clinging sound as if a mass of metal had fallen. As I ran down the passage, my sister's door was unlocked and revolved slowly upon its hinges. I stared at it, horror-stricken, not knowing what was about to issue from it. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister appear at the opening, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro, like that of a drunkard. I ran to help her, and threw my arms around her, but at that moment her knees seemed to give way and she fell to the ground. She writhed as one who is in terrible pain, and her limbs were dreadfully convulsed. At first thought, I thought she had not recognized me. As I bent over her, she suddenly shrieked out in a voice that I shall never forget. Oh, Helen, it was the band, the speckled band. There was something else which she would fain had said. She stabbed with her finger into the air in the direction of the doctor's room. But a fresh convulsion seized her and her choked words. I rushed out, calling loudly for my stepfather and I met him hastening from his room in his dressing gown. When he reached my sister's side, she was unconscious. And though he poured brandy down her throat and sent for medical aid from the village, all efforts were in vain. For she slowly sank and died without having recovered her consciousness. Such was the dreadful end of my beloved sister.' 